0: Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant.
1: And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Inova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation
0: consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you? I am really good. How are you doing? Good, good. So we have some, uh, I think we have some fun short articles to review today that are relatively new. Um, I think I'll start with my topic, with one of my topics first. So the first article I want to talk about is entitled, The effect of different tube feeding methods on the delivery of docoso, hexanoic acid, and arachidonic acid, which are also known as DHA and AA. And this was published in the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition in September 2018. Um, And this was done in Italy with the authors Martini, Assetti, Farini, and several others. So the authors talk about in their background that uh, docosohexanoic acid and arachidonic acid, again, we call them DHA and AA, these are essential fatty acids. And so they're really important for the development of visual and uh, brain development in premature infants. And we as humans don't make these, except we do make them to some extent in our breast milk, but we don't make them for ourselves. So we need to get them in our diet. So for these babies, they need to get them through breast milk. And they would have gotten them through, um, in utero had these babies stayed in utero for the requisite amount of time. Um, So mothers who ingest these in their diet um, will have higher levels of DHA and AA in their breast milk um, and usually they need to eat fish or seafood. Um, in order to have adequate DHA and AA, and so there's been um, there have been many articles written about the importance of mothers having adequate DHA and AA, and um, even milk banks have documented the differences in the amount of DHA in the breast milk in their donors, and you can see that in parts of the country where there's um, higher amounts of seafood, like the coasts, there's more DHA in the milk than in the Midwest, uh, for example. Um, And so, and in reality, when babies are in utero, they get their highest transfer of these fatty acids from the placenta to the the fetus in the third trimester. So that's why these babies are hit so hard, because they're ex-utero in the third trimester. Um, And... um, And so so what we need to do is make sure that these babies are getting enough DHA and AA. And in fact, we did one clinical question of the week through the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education, IABLE, um, on the recommendation by Bert Kuletsko, who's a human milk researcher from Europe. He recommended uh, three grams of tuna oil a day for all mothers who have babies um, who are preemies to get adequate DHA in their breast milk. So anyway. So we know that premature infants under 34 weeks are um, very often tube-fed to some extent. And the concern by these researchers is that the fatty acids will tend to separate out from the watery portions of the milk and the fat will adhere to the tubing. So I think we've known for years that there's some fat loss um, when babies are tube-fed. And they wanted to know which type of tube-feeding method would lose the least amount of the fatty acids specifically. So they simulated 51 feedings either using fresh uh, mother's milk or uh, pasteurized donor human milk. And what they did is they, me- they measured the DHA and the AA with um, like before and after. So they measured it with bolus feeding over four minutes. So then the food just like rushes into the baby over four minutes. And then horizontal continuous feeding over three hours. So the feeding is gradually delivered to the baby over three hours but the tube and the the tubing is held horizontally. And then they also looked at what happens to DHA if the tubing is held at 45 degrees angled. And then again, it's this continuous feeding over three hours. Hmm. So what they found is that the bolus feeding lost the least amount of fatty acids. And there really wasn't any difference before and after with a bolus feeding, which kind of makes sense because there's not a lot of time for that milk to be adhering to the, of the tubing and also I think maybe the force of like the weight of the feeding is like pushing the fatty acids maybe through the tubing.
1: Sure. But the the problem with that is that the reason that they do continuous feedings often is because the baby can't tolerate the cavage right. without getting,
0: you know, throwing up
1: spitting up or having it a residual or other, you know right. they're just not able to handle it.
0: Right. Right. And so then they found in the continuous feeding, um, both for the angled and the horizontal feeding, um, that um, there was a lot more DHA in the second half of the feeding than the first half. So already the fat is hanging back. And so... um, So I guess one important thing is that if they interrupt the feeding, if they put a bunch of milk in there and they figure, okay, we're just going to do this continuous feeding, but we probably won't give them like the last third of that milk. I don't know if that really happens. They're going to lose a lot of the DHA and AA. Um,
1: Oh, so then my question, you're probably going to say this in a second, is like part of the thought with that is that when the first milk is going through the tube, it's adhering to the tube and then it sort of gets coated and the remainder you know, goes mm-hmm. through without as much loss. And so is there some benefit to priming the tube for mm. some period of time before they start
0: giving the milk to the baby, if you have extra milk? Well, that's a really good idea. That's a really good thought. Um, it's kind of like um, like I was always taught, if you wet your hair before you go swimming with... Oh, yeah, to protect it from the chlorine. chlorine, then the, then the chlorinated water can't cling because it's saturated, so that makes sense. Um, but no, they actually didn't study that, which I think is brilliant Karen Um, (laughs) um, but um, but what they found is that there was very little fatty acid loss uh, in the angled continuous feeding so most of the fat loss had what occurred when the continuous feeding was horizontal and so they said that there was a 69% loss of fatty acids with horizontal tube feeding. So they recommended um, that either bullus feeding or at, or continuous feeding at a 45-degree angle to make sure they're getting enough DHA and AA. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Yeah. But I think you should market your idea of priming. Oh, it, it wasn't
1: It wasn't my idea. Oh. We've discussed it uh, previously in... Nicky Rounds. So I think that it's an idea that has been thought of before, whether or not it's been done anywhere, I don't know. But um, you should find out. Yeah, we're not neonatologists. So no, thank goodness. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm grateful for all of you out there who are neonatologists, so that I don't have to. (laughs) Um, All right. So I'm going to talk about an article that um, actually is just mind-blowing to me, which is uh, about intranasal breast milk for premature infants with severe intraventricular hemorrhage, an observation um, by Titus Keller and Frederick Colbert. It was published in November of 2018 in the European Journal of Pediatrics. And they start out by, you know, reminding us that preterm infants less than 1,500 grams, which are termed very low birth weight, are a group with significant morbidity and mortality. Severe intraventricular hemorrhage remains a complication with limited therapeutic options. And this study really grew out of trying to to help infants with this very um, difficult problem where there aren't a lot of options. Um, They talk a lot, and if you are interested in the subject, I really recommend grabbing the article because there's a lot of background in the studies. Um, behind this and I'm not going to go into but erythropoietin has been reported to have positive effects on neurological outcome um, sort of in this scenario and there are animal studies that support the hypothesis that intranasal application of neuroprotective substances such as epidermal growth factor could be a future therapeutic approach however there's a lack of data from human studies with intranasal treatment approaches And while it's known that breastfeeding is associated with improved performance on intelligent tests, intelligence tests years later, the mechanism's not well understood. And the impact of breastfeeding on intraventricular hemorrhage, which I'm going to call IVH going forward, Mm -hmm. is not well investigated. Um, It's known that breast milk is rich in growth factors, neurotrophins, and immune cells, and exposure of the um, naso or pharyngeal mucosa of healthy newborns to their mother's own milk occurs physiologically during breastfeeding. But just like you were saying, in very low birth weight infants on in the neonatal intensive care unit, this contact is usually bypassed because they're being fe- fed via tube.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the role of breast milk exposure for infants in the on the um, CNS has not been investigated. So this study is a retrospective case control of cerebral ultrasounds of um, infants who had severe intraventricular hemorrhage, and they were all very low birth weight infants to examine the result of exposure to intranasal breast milk. So this happened because in July of 2012, one very low birth weight infant with severe IVH um, started um, receiving regular drops of fresh milk from her mother intranasally out of compassionate use. Um, Essentially, this was a baby who was born at 26 weeks after um, preterm labor, um, and they had, you know, pretty good course in the beginning. Good Apgar scores and normal um, umbilical artery pH. Um, no signs of sepsis. No need for transfusion. But on day of life three, the cerebral ultrasound, which is done routinely, showed bilateral IVH um, on the right. It was grade two, and on the left, grade three out of four, with four being the worst. Um, and Intraparenchymal infarction on the left side. Mm. And when the neonatologist was explaining the diagnosis to the parents and the possible consequences, as well as the limited therapeutic options, um, they were asked if there were any other measures beyond standard therapy that could be taken to enhance the possible beneficial effect on brain development. And the additional intranasal application of some drops of breast milk was proposed by the attending neonatologist. Mm. They must have been familiar with some of this other background that I was not. Yeah. The idea was to possibly increase exposure of the brain to neurotrophins and stem cells in breast milk via the nasal route. And the parents um, consented under a compassionate use. So intranasal breast milk um, is commonly used for congestion in neonates and there was no safety concern. Um, and this baby was being treated with a respiratory support using CPAP. And so they were the milk was given three times a day during the regular switching of the nasal CPAP device. One drop of the baby's um, own mother's milk was given three times a day um, and continued for 10 weeks until discharge. The IVH resolved over a period of seven weeks and the neurological evaluation at discharge was good. This intriguingly good course um, contributed to the application of the same measure in 15 other very low birth weight infants with severe IVH between July of 2012 and August of 2014 um, with informed consent. So um, standard cerebral ultrasound diagnostic was performed daily um, until day three and then weekly. After four weeks, ultrasound was performed every other week, and then the um, cerebral ultrasound images were analyzed by a pediatric radiologist blinded to exposure of the intramasal breast milk, um, as well as the date of the scan. The authors presented a retrospective summary of 31 infants where they had um, matched all the cases with controls And um, all the infants were breastfed. 16 of them additionally had the drops of breast milk um, for at least 28 days. The um, main outcome was the measurable severity of poor encephalic defects before discharge. And the severity of the um, hemorrhage findings in the first days was similar in both groups, um, with them being slightly worse in the group that had the breast milk given intranasally. However, there was a decrease in the incidence of these defects, 21% versus 60% in the babies that weren't treated. Um, mm. There was a decrease in the treated babies of progressive ventricular dilation from 90% to 70 And the babies who were treated had less surgery for post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus, mm. um, only 50% versus 67. Wow. Um, they found that the severest Um, findings of white matter damage were 2.8 times more often um, in the control group than the intervention group, although there was such a small number of babies that statistical significance was not found. Mm. So the authors hypothesized that early intranasal application of breast milk could have a beneficial effect on the neurodevelopment in preterm infants and further controlled investigation is needed. I find this just to be absolutely amazing um, that they would have thought of this um, and that these effects were seen. I will say there's a lot more in the article, but the one thing I did want to mention was um, they pointed out that the uniqueness of the um, olfactory neurons exposed to the external environment as an entrance for the brain is not selective for neurotrophins or stem cells and pathogens um, like some amoeba can also use the nasal route to the brain. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, this olfactory route for neuroinvasion needs critical attention. They didn't specifically talk about CMV, um, but I thought that was really interesting specifically since this article came out of Europe, where I think in general, NICUs are more concerned about um, CMV for these particularly small babies in fresh breast milk um, so maybe you know they had tested these moms and they were CMV negative they didn't specifically comment
0: yeah or they um, froze the milk or something like that
1: no that it was all given within two hours of expression oh, fresh
0: oh, Yeah, huh? which is that makes more sense yeah
1: um, so because they're trying to keep those stem cells alive um -hmm. so i i think you know this does seem like it would be worthy of further investigation and um it's just fascinating
0: that'd be amazing also to give it to like you know adults with stroke and you know um other people who other yeah they talked a little
1: bit about that in here as well oops sorry
0: yeah interesting huh and so the other thing though is that even though babies are tube fed, they oftentimes do reflux into their mm-hmm. nasal, you know, up into the, you know, posterior nasal pharynx. And so well, I mean that goes to this thing we just mentioned about whether or not they're
1: continuous or gavage fed, because they're in yeah, general uh, trying to prevent them from having that refluxing. In yeah. the in the beginning, especially, you know, if they're intubated or they're on CPAP, but they're leaving so fortifiers,
0: it's very complicated. So this is another reason why <laughs> we can, um, we can, Tell mothers or families when the babies, the, the turn babies they're spitting up and it's like coming out of the nose and it looks like The Exorcist, and they're like, "Oh my God, it came out <laughs> of the nose!" Like, oh, that's so good for the brain development, you
1: know? Oh, that's really funny because oh, I have told them for years, no, 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 that's all of that immunoglobulin coating the inside of their nose and protecting right. them from viruses so they won't get sick. Right. But now I can also say they're they're gonna. Be grow their brain.
0: <laughs> <Be smarter. laughs> yeah, that's really great. Okay, I love that. So, okay, more to come on that. We're going to follow that one really closely. Um, okay, so another article is entitled "Maternal Placentophagy as a Possible Cause of Breast Bleeding and Vaginal Bleeding in a Breastfed Three-Month-Old," and this was this was an, um, a case report that was published in the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology in September two thousand eighteen. Um, by a couple authors, Stam, Beau, Hernandez, and Gunn, and others. So basically, placentophagy um, is also known as, like, taking placenta capsules. Um, is uh, it's, it's the practice of um, ingesting the placenta after birth. And so the most common way that I have seen in our community people doing this is to have uh, is to sign up with a service that will take the placenta after birth, dry it like in the oven um, over time, and then uh, turn that uh, dry placenta into capsules that the mothers will swallow. And the reason that women choose to do this is to prevent postpartum depression um, because they feel, you know, that the idea is that when a woman delivers, she's dumping all this hormone that the placenta was making so she felt great during pregnancy and then postpartum there's this big hormonal switch and that it's the change in those hormones that um, increases the risk of uh, the baby blues and postpartum depression so the idea is that you're just taking yourself down more slowly with those hormones by taking the capsules and then the capsules are thought to reduce postpartum bleeding um, to increase milk supply and to uh, get added iron since the placenta is so high in iron, although there's really no evidence that plus that eating the placenta does any of these things, and um, there's there's some um, conflicting um, uh, opinions on the issue as to whether or not there ever really has been a human culture on the face of our earth that has actually uh, historically ingested placenta. Um, some many authors or anthropologists indicate that there is no evidence for such cultures and some people say um, that, there, that there is, so we don't know for sure. Um, so anyway... Uh, these authors present a case of a three-month-old um, who had breast budding and vaginal bleeding thought to be due to placenta injection, uh, ingestion. So what happened is that this was a baby that was born to a first-time mom. She didn't have any prenatal problems, but when the baby was born, the baby had ambiguous genitalia. The baby had a, like a 14-millimeter phallic structure and a perineal opening and labial scrotal folds that were fused in the midline. So, it, so the baby had features that were a little bit male and a little bit female, and um, she was identified to have um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So she was put on um, hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone and salt replacement to correct for her deficiencies. And so she was followed by the endocrinologist and the baby was doing fine by one month of age. And then at three months the mother called because uh, the baby for two weeks had had some intermittent vaginal bleeding. And so when they saw her, they found that the baby's breasts were already a tan or two, which is like those, you know, that early those early breast changes that like a you know an eight, nine, ten year old would have, where they start to wear bras. Um, and um, the baby had breast budding, and the but the labia had not changed, and there wasn't any hair down below. Um, and uh, the baby had some vaginal bleeding. So uh, the mother did tell them that she was taking placenta capsules, and the endocrinologist thought that the changes were probably from the estrogen and the placenta capsules. Um, they recommended some blood tests for the baby and a pelvic ultrasound to make sure there's not something like an ovarian tumor, uh, but the mother decided not to pursue those and. Um, agreed to stop the placenta capsules. The breasts eventually went down in size and the vaginal bleeding stopped. And um, so nothing else was done, but the case report um, sort of made the conclusion that this was probably from taking the placenta capsules. Um, so, um, and then the authors just state as a side note, that the Center for Disease Control in the United States recommends not um, ingesting the placenta because there was a case report of late onset group B uh, strep um, sepsis in an infant from the ingestion of the placenta. Mm -hmm. So, um, I would say that in my community, um, I haven't, I haven't noticed the, you know, how, you know, how all these babies have, you know, really sort of profound breast buds when they're born. Mm -hmm. Um, and they can look and even have a little bit of milk secretion, um, from their breasts. Um, and, um, and I just tell, you know, my staff knows, you know, tell people, oh, look, that's normal, don't worry about it. And the vaginal bleeding, a little bit of spotting and bleeding in that first week is normal with lots of mucousy, vaginal discharge, and labial, you know, swelling is just normal. Um, I haven't seen this happen, um, but I think it's just a reminder for all of us, if we do see a baby that has really persistent enlarged breasts with drainage and, and maybe some bleeding after those first, you know, five days or whatever to think about whether or not mom is taking placenta capsules.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I think a lot of times, um, you know, I don't know that it's intentional, but people don't always mention the things that they're taking that are not from the pharmacy. Right. Um, Right. So be that, you know, herbal or this, sometimes it doesn't come out on the history if we don't ask specifically. Um, So it's it's probably a really important thing for me to remember to always ask
0: yeah well I would say the most I would say the most impactful thing that I see with placenta capsules is a, is lack of milk is is very low milk supply from taking the placenta and um, you know there 's probably variable absorption of those hormones from the capsules, but um, you know obviously for the milk to come in, so to speak, which is secretory activation the the placenta has to go away to drop those progesterone levels, and when you take placenta you're taking in the hormones that you're trying to get rid of in order to establish your milk supply. So and you're ha- probably also having your estrogen level high, which is going to exactly. suppress
1: your milk supply as well.
0: Exactly. Right. Both. And so I've had mothers who have had a fine milk supply with their first take placenta the next time because they had postpartum depression before and someone said, you know, why don't you try this? And so then they feel the milk starting to come in like on day two or whatever, and they're thinking, oh, this is all good. My milk's coming in. And then their placenta comes back all nice and dried and the capsules and they start taking that. And suddenly the milk goes away. and um, and my theory has always been if, if the low milk supply is due to the placenta capsules, st- after stopping the placenta capsules, it may take, it should take six or eight weeks for the milk supply to come back up to sufficiency because you're basically in a relactation situation. And, um, and that's basically what I find clinically. I, you know, my prediction about that tends to be pretty accurate. Um, and uh, they many women do get their supplies back. And I should say that not everyone who takes placenta capsules has this problem. It probably depends on um, how much hormone they're actually absorbing. And, and how um, much is
1: left depending on how it was processed.
0: Exactly. You know,
1: when people ask me about this or any herbal, I say, you know, there are certainly some herbal supplements on the market that go through, you know, they're, they're tested and we have more confidence in what they are, but they're not regulated in the way that, you know, pharmaceutical medications are and so I'm always like do you do do we really even know this was your placenta that came back to you I I find that very distressing
0: oh Um, gosh that's scary thought let's hope that that's not the case but
1: I mean I'm just saying the regulatory system is not there so Yeah.
0: yeah that's true All right, well, um, I have one other article, um, and this is also really super interesting. Um, It's entitled, A Randomized Clinical Trial Reducing the Intake of Dietary FODMAPs of Breastfeeding Mothers is Associated with Greater Improvement of the Symptoms of Infantile Colic Than for a Typical Diet. So this is an article that was published in the Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics Journal in September 2018, and it was done in Australia. Um, by a, a number of authors, uh, Lacaveau, Craig, Yelland, um, and others. Um, so, so you and I know, you know, being in breastfeeding medicine for a long time, that mothers will complain that certain foods will cause gas in their babies. Like particularly, I always think of broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage. Um, and these authors were interested to find out whether colic could be improved by changing mom's diet. So first, they made sure that they were dealing with. Actual colic in the subject that they had in their study. So we know that colic is defined by the Wessels criteria, which is crying that lasts for more than three hours a day, more than three days a week, and for at least three weeks. And um, the way I, first, first of all, I, oh, was you going to say something? No. Nope. Okay. So, first of all, um, when I talk to parents about colic, I like to distinguish between the Wessels criteria. And those babies that are fussy all day, all day, if they're fussy all day, um, day in and day out, that's not colic. There's something else going on with those babies and they need investigation. But I think of colic as being like, I always tell my, my families, this is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where the baby's like, you know, just crazy, crying, difficult to console, having a hard time, popping on and off their breast, not, not knowing what this baby wants. And then the baby goes to sleep and then wakes up and is like smiling and happy and um, you know, not you know, just acting like a normal baby. And so, um, and so uh, usually this will get better by about three months of age. The authors um, thought about this idea of uh, looking at mom's diet um, because there have been a few studies that document improved colic symptoms when moms change their diets. And so they were wondering, well, maybe what the way they're changing their diet is by reducing something called FODMAPs. And for those of us who are listening, for those of you who are listening who have never heard of a FODMAP, the FODMAP is actually an acronym for uh, fermentable oligo monosaccharides and polyols, which is why we call them FODMAPs, because no one wants to walk around <laughs> saying those words. <laughs>
1: I've been waiting this whole time to be like, what is
0: that? Uh, yeah. So these are basically indigestible sugars, and they cause gas. And so in my world as a family doctor, we are all about a low FODMAP diet because, um, well, primarily because irritable bowel syndrome is so, so common. So irritable bowel syndrome is you know defined by people who have bloating and gas and uh, you know, intermittent constipation, diarrhea, they're not regular, they're uncomfortable. And um, so the first step these days is to send them to the nutritionist who works in the GI department who can counsel them on a low FODMAP diet. And low FODMAP diets are really tricky to do, and so I usually advise that um, families um, really get count, that 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 patients do really get counseling from the dietitian because it's so. You look at the list of things that you can't eat, and you think that you should never eat again. So, oh no, it's really difficult. Um, <clears throat> So what they did is they enlisted exclusively breastfeeding mothers whose infants were less than nine weeks who met the criteria for colic. So what, the way that they recruited is they used social media to find these moms. And in order to prove that they really did have colic, the mothers had to do a seven-day diary to document their degree of fussiness and crime just to make sure they did meet Wessel's criteria. So they started out assessing 180 dyads, but they only found that 14 were eligible to participate, so mm-hmm. which is kind of amazing. So I don't know what all the you know like why it came out so low because it seems to me that everyone in my practice has colic to some degree. Um, so um, what they did is they took so they have 14 people. So they took seven mothers in each group, and each group started with um, one diet. So one group started with a FOD, low FODMAP diet. And then switched to a regular a regular Australian diet. The other oh, group it was started a crossover study. Crossover study, right? The other group started with the regular Australian diet and then switched to the low FODMAP diet. Now they didn't know, and they never heard the word FODMAP. They didn't know what low FODMAP was. They got their food from a van. The van came and said, "Here's what you're <laughs> eating." Which maybe that's why I only had fourteen people in the study when <laughs> they found out that they had to eat out of a van. <laughs> Wait, can I just interrupt and offend
1: all of our Australian listeners and be like, what is the regular Australian diet? Because I'm like, shrimp on the barbie. I have no idea.
0: Marmite? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. But it's, you know, I mean, you know, it's probably not like wasabi and, you know, things that you find, you know, uh, I have, I have uh, no idea. I haven't been to Australia. Buried, or eggs buried for 100 years is probably not that either. I don't. I have no idea. If
1: anyone would like to invite me to Australia to come and experience <laughs> it, let me know.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't even know what a typical American diet is other than going to like McDonald's. Like my girlfriend fries, <laughs> milkshake. That's a typical American diet, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, okay. So then they also had like a control group of mothers whose babies were under nine weeks who didn't have colic, which... To me it's like how do you find those babies because i i hardly ever meet them um so uh anyway so they so like garlic and onions are high fodmap foods and so the way that they trick them is they would use like garlic oil and onion oil like flavoring in order so the so that they could not Mm. tell the difference in the flavors of the foods and so what they did so the findings were that, that crying went down by 20% with the typical Australian diet and about 32% on the low FODMAP diet. And so the thought was well, why would this matter? Well, the first thing is that we know that low FODMAP diets will change the bacterial balance in the gut. Um, so you know how we talk about how breast milk has oligosaccharides that feed bifidus bacteria, and so it encourages the growth. It's the prebiotic uh, food for healthy bacteria. Well, FODMAPs, um, these, oligosac- these uh, indigestible sugars, will feed bacteria that are perhaps not, you know, the, not the bacteria that we want to grow. Maybe it's feeding the bacteria that actually cause more gas and bloating, etc., and so the idea by putting moms on a low FODMAP diet is that you're changing their bacteria. And then there's this amazing research that has come up um, showing that there may be something called the gut mammary access, where the bacteria that is populating the breast is actually coming at least partly from mom's gut to the breast through late pregnancy and then throughout lactation through uh, dendritic cells and through the lymphatic system. So there's some good research. I have a nice article that kind of looks at all the research showing that this is probably happening. Um, And um, so basically we're changing bacteria, and that bacteria that's kind of in this access going from mom's gut to the breast is changing actively uh, with low FODMAP diet. Um, So... um, the other thing that's really interesting is that a lot of the foods that we talk about that mom eats and babies get gas, um, like um, cabbage and Brussels sprouts and cauliflower, are actually really high in FODMAPs. Um, and we also know that food protein from any food, so we don't think of vegetables and fruit as being pro- as having proteins, but every food has proteins, and those food proteins go into breast milk. And so then the question is, how much do the food proteins from these particular foods um, have an effect on the infant gut knowing that those food proteins go into the breast milk. So it's, it's an interesting start. Um, I think that um, I think my lesson in this is that if mom has irritable syndrome, which is miserable to begin with, and then she has a baby who's screaming, which is doubly miserable, <laughs> then she might reduce her misery overall. If, she, <laughs> if we advise her on a low FODMAP diet, have her meet with a dietitian and see if changing her diet would help her um, help not only herself and her baby. So I think you know it's kind of low-hanging fruit, so to speak. I mean, I don't know if it's low-hanging fruit is fun, mm. but <laughs> I mean, between this
1: and the babies that are infant proctocolitis and the moms aren't eating, you know,
0: cow's milk, soy, right? Exactly, blah blah yeah. blah blah. Like they're
1: eating yeah. air.
0: Yeah. But, but the low FODMAP diet, I mean, I think that if mom's, I mean, I, I think I would suggest if mom has irritable bowel syndrome and she already has trouble with her gut, you know, why not? I mean, it's good for her at some point to meet with a dietitian. It, it gives her something to start working on. Um, and um, if the baby's really fussy, it might help her. But, you know, she doesn't need to be on a, a milk, soy, protein, you know, diet, you know, elimination diet yeah. if the baby's got colic. That, you know, dropping milk dropping dairy, I've never found to be helpful to, you know, to help with colic. I mean, that's something that I think parents go no, to. No, right but away it, and it, never... it
1: goes to that thing that you were saying about like, um, you know, if if babies are fussy all the time, then there's something else that needs to be investigated.
0: Yeah. And yeah.
1: I don't exactly understand why if this were Causing the baby's fussiness, that it would only be at that time of day.
0: Right, like, right. Well That
1: doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
0: I know it doesn't, but the thing is that you know the some of the there's strong evidence that giving um, Lactobacillus reuteri and um, and then um, Bifidus infantis. There's not as much evidence. You know the Evivo product. There's a lot more evidence for like the Gerber Sooth Drops with Lactobacillus reuteri. Um, on reducing colic, and this is the same thing where you're changing the gut flora, and that's actually helping colic just in the evening. So it's hard to know, you know, it's hard to understand why that would work, but it, but boy, that evidence is pretty strong. So, yeah. you know, I don't know. But the good news about Definitely. the whole thing, the good news is that colic only lasts for three months, and so I just say, you know what, it's a short time in your life. You can deal with this. Your baby's, you know, not going to be fussy forever and it doesn't have any association with like sociopathic behavior whether you go to college or high school or whatever so <laughs> no i think it's just it's it is cr- crying
1: is just something that all parents have to deal with whether it's colic or not and i think that it's the reason that you're like everybody's struggling with this is that it's hard it's hard to hear your baby cry and it's so really hard. yeah a lot of times you know, just even if we can't fix it, that like acknowledgement and um that saying, you know, this problem is going to get better makes a huge difference. Oh, Having absolutely. Providers
0: that have been there and done that helps them so much. Right. And knowing that things like taking out dairy or that there's not anything that they're doing that's necessarily causing this. Although I would say, I would add though that, um, I have seen a couple babies lately who have been calmer and not as fussy in the evening when moms drop the amount of caffeine that they're drinking. Um, Mm. So we haven't there. There was a recent um, like small meta small systematic review that was published recently that said that if moms really have to have more than like 300 milligrams of caffeine a day for the baby to really be affected. Um, But then you don't know how much caffeine is in coffee. And so I think if babies are really fussy, to really talk to moms to make sure that they're not taking a lot of stimulants. Um, Either caffeine, you know, soda, coffee, tea. And then some of these other things like, um, you know, there's all these drinks, that beverages that are low in calorie that have like green tea extract and guarana and, all these are stimulants. Might bother the baby as well. Mm, I don't know. I find
1: it harder to uh, cope with crying or other life irritations without coffee.
0: So yeah. Well, I did <laughs> have one mother whose baby was just um, spitting up, just like just huge amounts, huge 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 amounts. And uh, she cut back on. She was drinking a lot of caffeine because she was tired. Because she was up a lot. Because the baby was fussy. And then that really helped immensely. So. Huh um so something to think about I don't I'm sure that there are many mothers who drink a lot of caffeine where the baby's not bothered at all uh, but it just probably depends on the baby and then and then I did have you know one mother who was using um stimulants uh for ADD and the baby was less fussy when she stopped the stimulants oh. so that's another thing to think about with fussiness so okay. yeah well I think we finished off that one so um So for those of you who um, have not heard our podcast in a while, uh, this podcast is produced by um, the former Milk Mob. um, Also now, well, our new new name is the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education. And our website is lacted.org. And I want to mention that we have something very exciting coming up, um, which is going to be a free app called Lact Fact, L-A-C-T-E-D. L- uh, F A C T. It'll be free on your, your Play Store. In your Play Store, um, and it'll just be a series of our clinical questions of the week, but just the actual like two sentence facts with the article, so that if you're looking for a fact when you're at your family function about breastfeeding, and you can jet, you can just find it in the app, search, find your fact, show it to everyone around the table, and the article. And you're a genius and um, advanced breastfeeding in our in our world. So, <laughs> yes. Excellent. I yeah. can't wait to download it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Karen, take care. We'll talk to you later. Sounds good. Have a great day. Bye. Soon. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted, lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the clinical question of the week, our little green book of breastfeeding management for physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.